6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Colossians, an introduction. The Gnostics were a uh, mixture of mysticism, Eastern speculations, and Jewish legalism. That's a strange mix. It's a very strange mix. But uh, we'll, un- we'll get into all of that before the study's over. And it's surprisingly contemporary today in some surpri- very surprising ways. Alexandria, by the way, was one of the major headquarters. And it's for that reason that the Alexandrian Codex, some of the documents we have mo- done our modern translations from are documents that have been doctored by the Gnostics, by the way. That's one reason uh, the popularity of the modern translations has waned a little bit and people are going back to Textus Receptus in the translation world. But anyway, the uh, Eastern speculations plus mysticism. What we're going to be guarding against as we go through there is man-made traditions and philosophy. And we're going to, we, we won't play favorites. We'll have something to offend everyone. We'll, we'll spread that around quite evenly. The idea that matter was evil was an idea that the Gnostics uh, embraced. They also were, they had some very strange views that are close cousins to astrology. The whole notion that angelic beings are associated with the heavenly bodies and those heavenly bodies influence our lives. That's, that's a very predominant theme in the area. But to all this, they also stir in a a good dose of Jewish legalism. Um, Good and evil uh, uh, were derived from rules. That's what we really mean by legalism. And uh, we'll talk about circumcision, the Old Testament dietary laws, the kosher laws, uh, some of these ideas where they really came from. And so it may help you to get another perspective of how a, a Gnostic might map it. You have God, of course, at the top. And then you have these strange eons or emanations uh, in the form of angels, archangels, principalities, powers, dominions, thrones. These are all some in-between powers between God and Christ. That's, the, the, that's, the, that's a concept that uh, they took for granted. That's an error, of course. But from this, all kinds of other errors derive. And from this kind of mapping, you generated two different kinds of Gnostics, Docetic Gnostics and Corinthian Gnostics. How do they differ? Well, we'll get into it a little bit, but if you remember that the ascetic Gnostics regarded Jesus only as a phantom. He didn't leave footprints. He was a phantom. He wasn't really tangible. That's their concept of Christ. The Corinthians are a sort of close cousin that he was an intermittent phantom. And I'll explain that here in a minute, but those are two different kinds. The ascetic Gnostics, uh, which uh, comes from the word, they, he seemed to be real, see? He held that Jesus did not have a real human body, but only a phantom body. That was their viewpoint. He was, in fact, an eon, an emanation from God, and had no real humanity. He was an illusion of some kind. Well, that doesn't really quite fit the historical record, obviously, in a lot of ways. And we're going to discover, as we study the evolution of Judaism in another one of our subsequent sessions, how we get into trouble by just letting our tether get a little too long from the text. 
you stick with the text, there's safety. But if you start getting away from the text, you get uh, not only an error, but your ideas actually become inverted in a strange way. And we'll look at that as we go. The Serinthian Gnostics, their followers of a guy by the name of Serinthus, admitted the humanity of Christ, but claimed that Christ was just an eon that came on Jesus at his baptism in the form of a dove and left him on the cross so that only the man, Jesus, died. The idea is sort of a double thing that came and went is sort of the, the variation of the Gnostic heresy. See, some thought that Jesus was just a man, similar to Christian science or other phases of so-called new thought. That's probably a very prevalent perception in today's world, too. They, many people acknowledge that he was maybe a great teacher, a great example, all that sort of thing. You know, that was one of the uh, uh, great tragedies, in my mind, to the Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion. I think he did a remarkable job, despite some of the Roman Catholic overtones to it. But it has two serious deficiencies. The first, it creates the impression that the, the uh, crucifixion was a tragedy. No, it's an achievement that was planned before the foundation of the world. Hundreds of spe detailed specifications confirmed to make it what it was. The second thing, it, the second deficiency is it doesn't tell you who he was. He wasn't some great teacher, guy that did miracles, all that. No, no, no. The creator incarnate. And, and uh, unless you understand that, nothing, none of that makes any sense at all. But anyway, Paul's going to deal with all these heresies very directly. Others, by the way, held that he was a spiritual, not material. And John, the apostle, his writings deal with that directly. And uh, so this heresy sharpens because uh, concerning the person of Christ, was all, that's already been set forth in the Philippian letter, the kenosis. For those of you who studied Philippians 2, I won't take the time here. But in any case, Paul meets these things squarely, powerfully in his full-length portrait of Christ as the Son of God and Son of Man, both deity and humanity, in opposition to both types of the Gnostics. So it, you will, we'll get the feeling that Colossians was written directly for our own day as we embrace these things head on. And uh, we'll see that with so many people today, so many different groups, rob Christ of his deity. Every cult group finds some approach to dismiss uh, or minimize the deity of Christ. They'll yield all kinds of other things. But that. And Huxley's the guy that coined the term agnostic, meaning without knowledge. And uh, Paul coins a term, epignosis, which is really super knowledge. Paul is going to use the vocabulary of the Gnostics to upstage them with Christ, in effect. And uh, so, so, uh, but, but, uh, so all these heresies promise people, you know, spiritual perfection if they enter into the teachings and ceremonies described. There's always somebody that has a better way, the inside. Uh, secret, if you will. And this depth and full knowledge could only be enjoyed because you're one of the initiated. And uh, they're all based on man-made traditions and philosophy, not divine truth. So all these views undermine the very foundations of the Christian faith and attack the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what this is all about. Not about groups or movements. or It's about a person. What do you believe about the person of Christ? When Jesus asks you, whom do you say that I am? That's the key issue all the way through here. And uh, see, to them, to the Gnostics, he was but one of God's many emanations, and not the very Son of God come in the flesh. That's the distinctive. The incarnation itself, according to Matthew chapter 1, means God with us, Emmanuel. God is with us, not some emanation. God himself is with us. But these false teachers claim that God was keeping his distance from us. 
And uh, so when we trust the Son of God, there's no need for any intermediate beings. You don't need any intermediate. He is our high priest directly, and so on. And of course, his work on the cross settles the sin question, and we're going to deal with that head on too. And it completely defeated all the satanic forces, and we're going to celebrate that in the second chapter. And he put an end to the legal demands of the law. And Colossians is going to hit that just like the book of Romans does. And uh, he alone is the preeminent one and completely sufficient. If you have Christ, you need nothing else. He's, he, he's all that we need. Now, Gnosticism contains several characteristics. It was Jewish, stressing the need for observing the Old Testament laws and ceremonies. And there are people, Christians, that will try to get you to do that same thing. So be on your guard there. There are some dangers there. Gnosticism was philosophical, laying emphasis on some special or deeper knowledge, secret knowledge. It involved the worship of angels. Boy, is it interesting to see how consistent in the Old Testament and the New. Angels don't allow them... Elves get worshipped. One did, got in a big lot of trouble, right? Okay. And so, Gnosticism uh, was exclusive, stressing special privilege, perfection of the select flu who belonged to the philosophical elite. And so, we're going to find that this epistle is going to call forth one of the greatest declarations of Christ's deity found anywhere in the Scripture. That's quite a statement, and we'll encounter that before the chapter one is finished. So another thing, another strange view that I want to touch on is the Gnostics came to the conclusion, the false conclusion, that matter was evil. They started to associate tangible matter with the evilness. And uh, that a powerful spirit a world used material things to attack mankind. They held to a form of astrology, believing that angels are associated with heavenly bodies that then influenced affairs on the earth. And this shows up in the strangest ways in Jewish literature. It will not just... Uh, these other things. And so we also have a mix of Eastern speculations in here. That uh, the idea that the rite of circumcision was helpful in spiritual development. They still hit that. That's a very, that had a very specific purpose. We'll talk about that. The Old Testament diet, kosher laws. We're going to talk about that before we're through here. And uh, the fact that good and evil can be derived from rules and regulations. So this leads to a form of asceticism. Matter is not evil. Neither is the human body. Our fallen human nature wants to control the body and use it for sin, but the body itself is not evil. Or Jesus would never have come to earth in a natural body. That should be enough to refute that basic approach. And, he wouldn't, and, and nor would he have enjoyed everyday blessings, like attending wedding feasts or dinners. Diets and disciplines may be good for one's health, but they have no power to develop true spirituality. If you're going to be a vegetarian for, veg for nutritional reasons, Great, but don't attribute any spiritual dimension to that. That's a fallacy. And there are other examples I could pick. We're in an age of syncretism. See, these false teachings were a synthesis or a, a, a syncretism of Oriental philosophies, pagan astrology, mysticism, asceticism, with a, with a dash of Christianity. Something for everybody. Have you heard that kind of appeal? That's very popular today, isn't it? somehow attempt to harmonize and unite different schools of thought into some kind of composite religion. Why do we have this strange drive to mix it all together? These teachers claimed that they were not denying the Christian faith, but only lifting it to a higher level. Paul is going to take that one right out from under him. And do we have any of these heresies today? Of course we do. 
And they're ever more dangerous than they were in that first century. There's nothing new in the new age. Every modern erroneous cult is some, has some ancient satanic heresy revived. And one of the most interesting things I've observed in my more than 50 years of study is that every heresy you encounter is anticipated specifically in the Scripture. You name it, whatever it is. Reincarnation. Hebrews 9.27, as appointed men once to die and after this to judgment. Why is that there? To, to refute, you know, every, every heresy you can find is specifically anticipated by the Holy Spirit. And uh, so Satan has nothing new to offer. And, uh, you know, we, have a, we live in an era of religious toleration. One religion is as good as another. Many people try to take the best from various religions and fabricate their own. To them, Christ is only one of several great religious teachers, no more authority than they have. See, they may treat him as prominent, but not preeminent. And Paul is going to nail this issue of preeminence. And the epistle of Colossians is perhaps the, the, the main theme there. And uh, so uh, when we make Jesus Christ and the Bible only part of a total religious system or philosophy, we cease to give him preeminence. That's subtle, but important to recognize. We need to strive for spiritual perfection and fullness by, when we do that by formulas or disciplines or rituals, we go backward rather than forward. It astonishes me to watch many church, Christian churches advance themselves by going back to the dark ages, to the smells and bells, as some people would say, icons and incense. Why on earth do they want to emulate a period of time when the Word of God was not readily available, people were generally illiterate and couldn't read, why, and, and thus we have these other things going on, why do we want to go back to that when we live in an era where the Word of God is more available than it's ever been in human history? I carry six Bibles in my phone. I can search Hebrew or Greek in my phone. I have a laptop that has more volumes than, you'll, than populate most seminaries, and I can search it. I can word search it. If somebody gave me the 30 volumes of the Antonicene Fathers, I don't have time to study or read those. It'd take a lifetime. But I have them in my laptop, and I can find out what Irenaeus said to John about love. It'll show me in a few seconds. You see, in other words, the power we have with the information appliances, the availability of the Word of God. And these tools, by the way, are free for the large, uh, large measure. So, anyway, you want to be careful about... Uh, uh, rituals and so forth, uh, this idea of going backward. And beware of mixing our Christian faith with alluring things as yoga, transcendental meditation, oriental mystic, and all. Everybody has something to improve it. You don't need to improve it. Christ is complete. And beware of this deeper life teachers that offer some kind of victory or special system. In all things, give Jesus Christ preeminence and you'll discover He's sufficient. There's nothing new. Every heresy has been anticipated by the Holy Spirit. And no one familiar with the book of Colossians will ever be misled by the specious sophistries and various cult systems that are being foisted on a credulous public. And there's a whole list of these that just continue. So with this background, we can start to focus on the epistle itself. Written about the same time as the letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians is on the church, the body of Christ. Colossians is on Christ, the head of the body. 
They're very similar, and yet they have that distinctive, if you're alert to it. Ephesians speaks of Christ as a prophet, Hebrews as a priest, Colossians as a king. The prophet, priest, and king, the three primary offices of the Mashiach, the Messiah. Now, Paul will use the, the vocabulary of these false teachers, but with their true meaning. It's going, to, it's going to be interesting to watch his words of fullness, perfect, or completeness, wisdom. All these terms that are popular in the Gnostic writings, Paul uses, but with accurate and valid effect. The word all, all this, over 30 times he uses that term. And he speaks a lot about angels and spirit powers. There's no need for you and I to worry about that. He'll put that down. And God sent his very son to die for us. Every person that believes on Jesus Christ is saved and is part of his body, the church, of which he is the head. That's the complete, long, and short of it. And there will be people trying to attack that, and we'll try to deal with each one of those issues. Nothing need be added. If you have Christ, there's nothing you can add. He's complete. Every believer is complete in Him, totally sufficient. You know, when you say that, it's just words that, well, of course. No, watch. It's a very challenging thing to embrace and understand. And Paul did not begin by attacking these false teachers or their doctrines. Interesting point. He doesn't attack them in that way. He begins by exalting Christ and showing His preeminence. There's a lesson for us. Don't get caught up in attacks on that. Don't unsell that. Sell Christ, in effect. Okay? And he does it in five ways. The gospel message, the whole issue of redemption, what really went on there, the creation, what's really going on there, and that will surprise you as we get into that a little bit, the church, and Paul's own ministry. Those are the, 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 the way he dealt with it, head on. In, now, in chapter 2, he exposes the false origin of those teachings. And how they contradicted everything Paul had already taught them about Jesus Christ. The believer who masters chapter 2 is not likely to be led astray by any new improved form of Christianity. And of course the greatest antidote for false teaching is a godly life. So chapters 1 and 2 are the doctrinal chapters. Chapter 3 and 4 is the application with some important exhortations. Wrong doctrine always leads to wrong living. And what we believe determines how we behave. People you know, character is what you do when you don't think anyone's looking, right? So chapter 1 is Christ's preeminence declared. Chapter 2 is Christ's preeminence defended. And chapter 3 and 4 together will be Christ's preeminence demonstrated. So those of you like... Outlines, there's all D's for you. Declared, defended, and demonstrated. We'll do one better here in a minute anyway. Christ's preeminence, the doctrine of Christ's preeminence is declared in chapter 1. The dangers are involved by Christ's preeminence being defended in chapter 2. And in chapters 3 and 4, the duty we inherit is to have Christ's preeminence demonstrated in our lives. That's our goal. That's our goal. And we're not going to do this in a rush. We could do this, we're going to go through this verse by verse as carefully as we can. And uh, we'll take the, the chapter 1 in four parts, the gospel message, the redemption, creation, church issues. And then chapter 2, beware of uh, empty philosophies, beware of religious legalism, 
and beware of man-made disciplines. It's amazing. Beware of religious legalism. Funny how we always want to do things by rules. Don't do this and don't do that and so forth. And uh, I noticed that walking in here, there's a little sign there, don't step over the wall. It never occurred to me. Yeah, we take a shortcut. We just stepped over the wall. It was easy. You know, you got to get around to the enter there. Christ's preeminence demonstrated in our personal purity, in Christian fellowship, in the home, in daily work, and in Christian witnesses, and in Christian service. So that's the outline. We're going to work our way through the four chapters, verse by verse. Now, the spiritual order, if we look at these, the, the Paul's epistles, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Romans is doctrine, 1 Corinthians is reproof, and Galatians, correction. The Word of God is suitable for instruction, for doctrine, reproof, and correction. And those first three have to do with salvation, soteriology. The next three, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, have the doctrine, reproof, and correction in ecclesiology, the church, in its mystical sense. And of course, Thessalonians is uh, eschatology, eschatological. But we're, we're focused, of course, as a Colossians and corrections, if you will, for the ecclesia. Now, let's, talk, let's just summarize what we're going to be picking up here on Christ, Christology, if you will, the visible form of the invisible God. The prior head of all creation. We'll un unravel those terms as we go. In Him, the universe was created. He is before the universe. He, in Him, the universe coheres. The head of the body, uh, uh, the church, He's the head of it. And uh, He's the firstborn among the dead. What does that really mean? And we'll get into all that. A couple of quick verses to get a flavor of where we're headed here. These are incredible verses in and of themselves. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and by Him are all things held together. He didn't only create it. It's His moment-by-moment -moment continuance that they continue to exist. And he's going to let go. We'll talk about that. With some surprises, perhaps. Another quote, in chapter 1. He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning of the firstborn of the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should full, all fullness dwell. That's quite a statement. That in him, in Christ, should all fullness dwell of the Godhead. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Comprehensive statements here. And we're going to explore each one of those. And we'll also hit some of these other, what I would consider tangential issues, astrology, angels, and heavenly bodies. And Paul will denounce these with vigor. On the cross, Jesus won complete victory over all satanic powers. Nothing we need to tremble before. Christians do not need to turn to the rudiments, that is the elemental things, referring to the beings, uh, to being controlling the heavenly body. That's a Gnostic term that they were trying to sell. Horoscopes and superstitions deny the person and work of Jesus Christ. They're satanic and they're dangerous. They're not just little idle pastimes. They're, they're entries for heavy things. That's one of the questions that we're going to explore as we go here. Do heavenly bodies have any influence over lives? 
And of course we have this whole astrology thing. And there's this issue of diet and, and, and spiritual living. Does God speak to us immediately or in our minds? We'll talk about that. And do Eastern religions have anything to offer us in the, as evangelical Christians? These are very contemporary questions. The very issues Paul dealt with in this incredible epistle. And as I've said before, I just get in front of us. He, many scholars believe Colossians is the most profound letter Paul has ever written. And uh, we need, of course, to depend on the Holy Spirit. Mysticism, legalism, man-made philosophies are secretly creeping into our churches today. They are not denying Christ, but they are dethroning Him and robbing Him of His rightful place of preeminence. You need to understand that that's the first step, is to dethrone Him. So anyway, of this list, of course, we're going to, in the next session, take the first half of chapter 1, the Gospel message and redemption. So for your next session, I would like you to read, study carefully the first half, verses 1 through 14. Review your own notes on the basics. Why is, there evil, why is there evil in this world if creation is made by a holy God? That's an interesting question. If you've been through some of our preliminary materials, you'll have some notes on that issue. We'll talk a little bit about that. Can you lose your salvation? Boy, for 400 years, within the Christian body, there's been a war going on between the Calvinists and Arminius about this. We'll deal with that head-on, with some surprises. They're both right and they're both wrong. And both right in what they assert and both wrong in what they deny. And we'll get into that a little bit. Can you lose your salvation? We'll have a very surprising answer to that, I believe. So with that, we'll stand for a closing word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this epistle. We do pray, Father, that you would, through your Holy Spirit, reignite in each of us a renewed appetite and hunger for your word, that we each might grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, that we each might fully appreciate that he is indeed preeminent above all things and totally sufficient for our needs as we commit ourselves into your hands in his name, in the name of Yeshua our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Colossians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.